welcome to Blink of an Eye, where we interview thought leaders and deep thinkers on trauma healing wisdom, both ancient and modern, as we learn together with experts from around the world. We also engage in captivating relational conversations with spinal cord injury heroes and innovators in our Dear Louise series. Out of one mom's trauma to integration story, Blink of an Eye brings you a collection of unparalleled and diverse views as we take you on an inspiring and unvarnished look at the true nature of trauma in all our lives. Today's episode is part of our Dear Louise series, where I have the joy of conversing with extraordinary individuals living with spinal cord injury, who both embrace and defy their physical limitations as entrepreneurs, trailblazers, tastemakers, and innovators. Join us as we explore what is possible in spinal cord injury. This episode is sponsored by Blink of an Eye Nonprofit and by Baltimore Mediation. Our next guest has been changing the lives of those with SCI for 38 years since the moment he himself was injured in a drunk driving accident. Stay tuned. Blink of an Eye Nonprofit is filling a gap nationwide in response to spinal cord injury trauma for families in the first hours and days of injury. With fewer than 20 hospitals in the country having SEI expertise, Blink of an Eye has navigators who themselves have been there as SEI survivors and who are trained in relational approaches to trauma, who are available 24-7 to support families, empowering them on their journeys, navigating their lives, and interacting with medical staff for the first 30 days. The nonprofit's mission is to transform the SCI crisis experience into an extraordinary one, despite the devastation. When you learn of a newly injured SCI family, call Blink of an Eye on their toll-free number, 1-844-41-BLINK. You can also learn more and get involved with Blink of an Eye at www.blinkofaneye.org. Blink of an Eye is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. Since 1993, Baltimore Mediation has been leading the way in a relational approach to conflict and problem solving. They are national leaders in teaching and providing fully immersive and experiential online training in mediation and conflict transformation skills. Register for the next course at www. Dot baltimoremediation.com The quality of your interactions at work, at home, and in your daily life will be transformed. And you will create more well-being for yourself and others. Better process, better outcome. Baltimore Mediation. I am blessed to be talking today with Hector Devoyer. He's a Consciousness Transformational Coach, CTC, a social worker, a public speaker, and an author based in Central Florida. Hector's work primarily revolves around helping others and addressing various topics such as 
limited beliefs, addictions, and disabilities. And together with his friend, Willis Washington, he has created a six-week beta course called Thriving Through the Transition, a course for men with spinal cord injury to reclaim their worth and value. This course aims to support men living with SCI and navigating and overcoming challenges during their transition. And Hector is a new member of the Blink of an Eye navigation team to help men in their spinal cord injury journeys through our nonprofit. Hector, I am delighted to welcome you to the Blink of an Eye podcast. Luis, thank you so much. It's great to be here. It's good to be talking with you. Mm-hmm. Well, might we start with your giving our listeners a sense of who you are? Well, you said it already. Uh, I am big on my culture. I'm Puerto Rican. I love my salsa. I love my culture. Brought very strong in uh, faith and religion. And unfortunately, Louise, at my age, at that time, I was born in 1965, growing up in the 70s and the 80s as a uh, Catholic boy in the streets of Dover, New Jersey. I was just a wild and crazy kid. I was the youngest of four, all right? And I was the baby of the family, and I was spoiled. And so they pretty much let me go and do what I wanted to do because I was a boy and not a girl. My two sisters, they didn't have it so easy. Me and my brother, we had it pretty much easy. We, were, we just had to take out the garbage, and we were pretty much given that freedom. But what can I say? Youngest of four, just out there, crazy, wild kind of guy. And um, I got into trouble a lot, especially around substances. What is it that you want us to understand about how you were a wild and crazy boy, given a lot of freedom growing up in the streets of New Jersey and just in New Jersey? And how it was that you got into substances. What's important for us to understand about that today? I complicated it. You know, growing up, I didn't understand a lot of things. 17 years old, just very impulsive. And my family being born, you know, the youngest four, um, I was, uh, by the time I came along, Louise, my parents got tired. They were already working two jobs. It was hard for them growing up. And so we stuck very close to the church. But it was a very dysfunctional way because they were still battling their own alcoholism. And so when we came home, it was, uh, it was very dysfunctional growing up. At the age of around 10 or 12 years old, uh, I was very grateful that my parents were able to stop drinking. And that helped a little bit, but it just seemed like the damage was already done in regards to self-esteem and how I felt. At 10 and 11 years old, I felt very overwhelmed in the world. And I felt like God put me in the wrong family. Like, why did you do this to me? So I felt like a victim from the very beginning, very insecure about myself and about who I was. So finally they stopped drinking. That was helpful. But like I said, the damage was already done. And I started my own drinking. A matter of fact, in sixth grade, I got busted for drinking because it was the last day of sixth grade. We went on a picnic. And me and my three little friends, three musketeers, we used to call ourselves, decided to go get something to drink. And we stole something to drink from our parents' liquor cabinet. And we brought it to school. And we took it on that field trip. And we got busted. And they didn't know what to do with us because it was the last day of sixth grade. They wanted to spend us. So when they do, they busted us in, I'm sorry, this was fifth grade. And they busted us after the summer when we came back to school for a week. So all our friends got to go to the first day of school. 
we had to wait a week later to go back to school because we were suspended for that time period. And that's where the whole thing about trying to deal with this whole shame about who I was and this embarrassment about who I was because I embarrassed the family and I embarrassed us. And so the family, uh, they, they pretty much labeled me the black sheep at that young age. So seventh, eighth grade, I found gymnastics, but I still was doing other things on the side that really put my life in high risk, such as drinking, illegally drinking, uh, hanging out with the wrong people in the wrong places, which made it a very difficult way to have to manage me as, again, being the youngest in the four. So I get into school. I go to school. I'm not that great with the grades. I'm about a C average, but I love gymnastics. And that's where I really enjoyed being in the gym. My coach took a you know a liking to me, taught me a lot, and he used me a lot. They started doing a gymnastics team at the school. And then I became the captain of the gymnastics team in my senior year in high school. But throughout those years, from freshman to my senior year, I was still getting in trouble with the law. I was still getting in trouble with cocaine. At that age, 16, 17 years old, drugs, alcohol, it was just getting crazy up until September 17th of 1982. First week of my senior year, I was just given my uh, captain's jacket for gymnastics. And I just had this car that I paid uh, about $500 for, and it was 1972 Ford Maverick. It was the coolest thing. It didn't look that great because it looked as yellow as this shirt, more like a school bus, but I loved it. It was my first car. I worked on it all summer. I was a carpenter's apprentice. I was working with a master carpenter, and uh, he was teaching me all the skills. But there was something inside of me that was struggling with who I was, who my identity was, trying to figure it all out. I thought I was just a cool Puerto Rican kid on the streets of Dover, and that was pretty much my life until something happened on September 17th where I was already getting served with a fake ID. I was already getting served alcohol and so forth in bars. I was already going into clubs at the age of 16. I was dancing. I was a great dancer, but I was living life too fast, too quick. And on September 17th, it was a Friday night. I went out to go roller skating. I was wearing some Jordache jeans for those of you who remember the Jordache jeans. And uh, they were too tight to go roller skating. So I decided to go home, get changed, uh, get something more comfortable, came back out. My mother was just uh, in the living room at the time. She goes, where are you going so late? I said, Mom, I'm okay. Don't worry. I'll be back later. And I left. And that's the last time that my mother pretty much saw me walking out the door. And um, then she got a phone call like around midnight that evening and found out that I uh, ended up hitting two cars and a brick wall, which left me paralyzed from the chest down. Mm. Sorry for making such a long story. No, just we'll just pause on that for a moment. I have found that in receiving the stories of tetraplegia, whether it uh, leaves one as a paraplegic or as a quadriplegic, that there's this reception of the story that I just want to just pause on. Mm. September 17th, 1982. Yeah. Yeah. I've been in other worse situations. That was what it was a, a calm Friday night. Just got paid, picked up my car. You know, again, being a Puerto Rican, I had to always have an attitude about me, and that car was part of me. 
you know, as part of my attitude. Had a little doggy in the back, you know, with the wobbling head, you know, because everybody thought that Puerto Ricans always had a little doggy in the back of their thing with the wobbling head and so forth like that. And um, so I thought that that everything outside of me was my image. My car was my image, the way I looked, the way, you know, everything, the way I danced, everything was about the body. Everything was about an image that I was living up to that image as much as I possibly could. On that night, everything was just going right. I picked up my car. We go for a ride. I uh, go to roller skating alley, come back. I change my clothes. I leave. Say goodbye to my mom. I'm at a red light. Now, I was a carpenter's apprentice. At this red light to my left was the building that we just did the construction work all summer long. We renovated the building. We reconstructed it. It was beautiful. I was admiring it. I was also admiring these two pretty girls that were on a fire escape on the third floor. I was at the red light. I look up. They look down. They wave. I wave back. We smile. And I say, hey, do you know that I built that place, blah, blah, blah? They wave me over. They say, come on up. I park my car. I go up the fire escape. We start talking. We start introducing ourselves. And we start drinking. Amaretta and beer. And after drinking almost uh, the bottle with them, invite them to go for a ride with me. They invite me to go for a ride first uh, because they knew somebody that um, had marijuana. And so we went there. We smoked marijuana. Uh, hi. And this is when I knew I was in trouble, Louise. I come out of the house. They're walking to the car. We're laughing. I said, hey, guys, why I didn't use the bathroom indoors or whatever, but I ended up outside. And I uh, said, excuse me, ladies, I just got to go to the bathroom. I'll be right back. I went into the bushes and I was um, urinating in the bushes. And I said to myself, I shouldn't be driving. Mm-hmm. I should not be driving. Mm-hmm. And then I just said, you know what? Stop thinking like that. Like that's negative thinking, you know, like mm-hmm. stop thinking like that. I turned around. I go with, uh, with these two girls. They sit in my front seat. My front seat is, is bucket seats mm-hmm. and uh, passenger bucket seat doesn't uh, work very well. If I put on the brakes, the bucket seat slides all the way. No one's wearing seatbelts. We're driving into my car. I'm listening to Foreigner. We're nodding back and head. You know, we're, the music subs loud. We're just nodding our heads back and forth. And we're just smiling. We're laughing. And all I hear, I'm driving on Route 46 eastbound, going towards New York, going to a pizzeria. And all I remember was the girl just scream into my right ear. Like, stop or watch out. It's about all I could make out of it. And then I just went out. When I came to, I was stuck in my front seat. I had the steering wheel stuck up against me. I was up against a brick wall. I couldn't tell you that that was happening at the time. These are all things that were told to me afterwards. And I couldn't move. I couldn't get out of my car. And I just remember this gentleman talking to me. I remember seeing his fireman's hat, whatever. I remember seeing the lights, everything. But I felt fine in that sense for like a moment. And then he goes, Hector, I'm just going to cover your face. I'm going to get you out of here. Don't worry. So they covered my face. They're taking this thing called the jaws of life. They're taking my door off, windows. And finally, when they finally get me out of the car, I just went out again. And um, I ended up at the emergency room hospital. I had a very angry nurse who was just upset with me. And uh, and I tell her I have to throw up. And she just turns me over on my side. 
And she goes, that's what you get for drinking and driving. Mm. And that's, uh, that's pretty much all I remember. After that, it was out for about a week. I'm told that the two people that I hit, I hit two cars and a brick wall. Two people that I hit, no one was injured. The two girls that were in my car, Louise, with no seatbelt, no nothing. They were fine. No oh, one got injured in my car. No one got injured. No one got injured. Oh, they were upset. Just takes my breath away. Two girls out in my car when the police got there, right away, police said, hey, I want everybody back. Get behind me. Get behind me. Two girls were scared. They were able to get out of the car. They were scared. A lot of people, because it was actually a football game from my high school that was being played right there by that brick wall that I hit. And so a lot of people from, you know, from the game came over, find out and look. And anyway, they got mixed up in the crowd. Crowd kept getting pushed back, pushed back, pushed back. And they got scared and they left. Seeing the accident. I say this part of the story because, because that was the whole mentality when we were out with people drinking and we're partying and so forth. We're not thinking about something like this. We're not thinking about the dangers of what could happen when we mix that whole thing of drinking and then trying to, to drive. It's been a problem ever since. It's been a problem, you know, ever since the two have, have just been a part of our way of life and so forth about making those decisions in those times at that moment. We just don't realize the decisions that we're making, how they're going to affect our lives. But anyway, so that's exactly what happened. Well, hang hang on just a moment, just on that, but anyway, part, let's just pause. <laughs> Goodness, there's a big message here, a reminder message, a message we've certainly heard time and again, but just in a very profound way today about not mixing alcohol and driving or any substance. You yeah. mentioned, yeah, you've been drinking amaretto and something else and then also got high. It's just the whole melange. Yeah, and that's uh, what it was. It was a melange for quite some time. What sense have you made just in the time that I've known you? I'm sure mm -hmm. that this man of great meaning has made some sense of the fact that you were so gravely injured and no one else mm -hmm. around you was. Yeah, it really has felt like 40 years in the desert. It's been 41 plus years since September 17th, 1982, 17 years old. Today I'm 58 years old. It's been a lifetime. It's been a lifetime of just experiences. And I don't know exactly when that first day was where somebody came up to me because since the last 40 years, Louise, I just been given gift after gift after gift after gift. You know, when I returned back to school, that in itself, returning back to school six months after that was a milestone in itself. Mm -hmm. Today, Louise, you get a spinal cord injury, you're talking about four or five weeks in a hospital. Yeah. A quadriplegic does not look like a quadriplegic today. From my standards, a C5, C7 injury does not look like it. I'm in a motorized wheelchair. We're very limited, but I had a lot. Everybody had, it's this individual treatment program that I really like for us to focus more on these days. Because for me, I was thrown in and we were all treated the same. We were all cookie-cutted, the 
the same treatment. This is how many hours of PT you got, who you got it with. Nobody really talked about the mindset and the emotional stuff that is also involved in this injury. We're looking, we're focused on the body and we're focused on how do we become, how do we make the body back to where it was, back to its independence, you know, so the person, the individual can take care of themselves. And we've learned a lot in these last years of paralysis and so forth. But back to your original question, what has that meant for me? What what has this journey been like for me? And it's been spiritual. It's been very spiritual. And that's for me is the key for it for me. That's where it took me from that kid, that 17 year old lost kid mm-hmm. to the man that I am today. It has took me through some amazing journeys. And when I say journeys, I'm talking about through addiction, through suicide, with a spinal cord injury, to meeting celebrities, to meeting President Reagan, to meeting so many celebrities out there to support and so forth and really not understand those relationships, you know, those those experiences that I had to losing everything, to going through two failed marriages, being open. And then when you get open and honest with everyone, then it's a whole different uh, transformation. And again, which brings it to where I'm at today with this course of transitioning, of thriving through this transition. My goodness, I can't tell you, it hasn't been 40 years. It hasn't felt like 40 years, Louise. Yeah. It hasn't. It, it's, it, it's about this moment. Mm-hmm. It, and it's about thousands and thousands of moments like we're having right now, but having real discussions, having real emotions and thoughts about who I am and what it is I have to offer. That's where I am today. From that kid at 17 years old, 41 something years ago to the person I am today, um, I have an abundance, mm-hmm. abundance of wisdom, abundance of experiences that we all get. You know, this is not just, this is just my story, but yet we all have the ability to perceive life differently than what sometimes we're just looking at. And if we're just looking at the body, then we're just looking at what's changed, what's getting older. We're all dying from the time that we've been born. We're all dying. What are you doing with your time? I say a lot in my talks. What are you doing with your time? In yeah, this we can moment? all say we're just, um, you know, one day closer to death. I would really, Hector, like to talk with you more about the thriving through transition. But before we do that, Hector, I'm really curious that you have opened up this feeling of being in a desert for 40 years from a lost kid at 17 when you were like, you know, you were the man. Oh, you looked the part. You had the bobblehead on the back. You had the cool, you know, souped up car. You could dance. You know, you were there. And yet you were lost. Mm. And when this accident happened, it wasn't, it sounds like from your story, this epiphany that just happened to you in that moment. It was, you had two failed marriages thereafter. You had an attempted suicide. Your addiction Sounds like it may have even continued. What mm-hmm. what did that path look like with regard to your insights and the length of time? So we can really get a sense of these things for some of the journeys, yeah. the trauma healing journeys. It looked like a mess. It looked like a mess. And what I mean by that, it was because it was a combination 
of some beautiful moments, you know, with some scary moments, mm. with some stuff that looked like it's right out of Hollywood, and then stuff that looked like it was a nightmare. It's really complex. You know, in- integration, actually, the true path of integration is both sides of that coin until they meet and they befriend, yes. they befriend each other, right? As opposed oh, to fighting so each good. other. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's exactly, exactly where I am today. You know, I'm, I'm like a battery, okay? I have both positive and negative charges, energies, okay? It doesn't make me a bad battery or good batteries unless you want a door cell or, you know, you know, what kind of battery do you want? You know, how are you made and how do you take in your energy? So for me, I realized that from all these experiences, I still have issues. I still have problems. The thing is that I like my problems today. I'm not trying to avoid my problems. I like the challenge. I like to say, really, you know, where before I would either get pissed off, angry, and this can't happen, and blah, blah, blah. And I put all that energy into that anger. And then I try to project, you know, all that anger out onto you, not realizing that I was doing all this damage to myself inside because it left me alone. It left me empty. It kept me pushing people away when I really wanted people to come close and help me understand my own thoughts, my own emotions, and the energy that I was causing myself, that I was causing my own illness of depression, my own illness of suicidal ideations and these thoughts and so forth. And I was keeping them to myself. It wasn't until I was letting them out, asking for help, saying, how do you do this crazy thing called life? You know, and and how do you do it right? I kept on trying to do life right or correct or trying to do it according to you and not to really who I was, Mm. you know, and being okay with me, with both the good, the bad, and the ugliness. Of life. When was it that you first realized the power of asking for help? Bits and pieces. Bits and pieces. There were bits and poem moments back there in 1982. And then there were bits and pieces back in 1995. And then there was bits and pieces back in mm-hmm. 2020. And then it all comes together, like you said, Louise. It eventually all comes together. You know why? Because I kept on trying. Every time I failed or, or I thought that I failed, or I was miserable, I kept on asking and say, God, why do I continue to, to what do they say about the word of insanity? Uh, continue to do the, the same, same thing, thing and get different, mm-hmm. and get, try to, you know, accept Thinking this it's different result. different result. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Forgive me, but I, just because sure. of your injury, like hitting the other expression, like hitting your head up against a brick wall, which is exactly where you were in the car right. that day. Mm. Yes. And not only that, the fact that today that that I had to slow down, but this is where life gets humorous. And I think God gets funny sometimes is that I always tell people, I said, what is it about this fast kid that was all about moving fast, dancing fast, doing flips fast? Everything was fast, fast, fast. I was always wanting to like flash in front of you and say, oh, wow, who was that? That was my whole thing. Yeah, that was the MO, that was the image. Yes, exactly. So here I was, paralysis stops you, just stops you. And it it forces you to stop and think. But the thing is, and they put me in this motorized wheelchair. 
these things go seven to 10 miles per hour. All right. These things can be very dangerous. All right. So I said, what were they thinking? What was, what was God in the universe thinking, you know, here, really, did I really ask for this? You know? So to your question, it's an ongoing process, but I'm so grateful that I've made this connection. Once I embrace myself that this is who I am and I embrace who I am today and I really have abilities and not disabilities, you know, because that's where we got the whole don't dis my ability from, you know. This different differently abled. Mm -hmm. Yes. What do you want to look at? Do you want to look at the cup half empty or do you want to look at it half full? Do you want to make lemonade from that lemon? All those four me's, I'm sorry, why me? All those things. I get it. I, re- I, I don't mean to minimize or rationalize people's pain because I know that mental and emotional pain feels so real. It just doesn't feel like there's no way out. And that's the sad part about suicide is that we're looking at a temporary problem. We're looking at it to try to, to do a permanent solution to it. And what we need to do is we have to feel what we're feeling. We have to talk about what we're feeling. We have to express what we're feeling because that's the only way it gets used. It needs to get used. Yes. You know, these thoughts, these patterns. And that's why we think we have to take action. And we're right to that sense. We just have to take a positive action, not a negative action. One that unites, not one that divides us. Well, you've mentioned a number of times this awareness of how it is that you allow your emotions and that you don't numb out, which would be the sort of a phrase or an understanding that we understand and know about. Yeah, trauma. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so you can escape all the way to suicide. I get it. Um, You certainly can escape an addiction and not just addiction of narcotics or alcohol, but addiction of lots of things, you know, video games and movies and work and sex. All of it. Yeah, all of it. Are you bringing in any of these understandings into your work on thriving through transition? Absolutely. Mm, tell us about that. It's a physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, financial dance <laughs> um, that we are constantly facing every time I open up my eyes every morning because that's what it is. I realize that the resources I have today, not many people, I don't have them today. That's because I've spent the last 40 years connecting collecting and connecting with those resources knowing them understanding them how the system works you know don't get me wrong i didn't do none of this in the very beginning i was lost in the system i was a part of a dysfunctional here not only the system that's broken that's out there trying to help us but as well as i was broken with inside of myself not believing in myself i'm responsible in that sense or or that i felt deserving of those services oh, or those benefits. Perhaps. Entitlement. Yes, exactly. And and sometimes that went to my head as well too, that I thought I was entitled to these things. So give them give my rights right now. You know, I was a very angry advocate for a long time. I demanded my rights. And sometimes we get to that point where we need to demand our rights when if you've been abused within this system or we've abused ourselves within ourselves, you know, we have to come to a, a place to make peace with ourselves. Yeah, to be be an advocate that's not the angry advocate, nor the yeah. nor the rug, right? It's, it's yes. too hard or it's going to take too much energy. It doesn't matter. That's the other direction. It's, it's something that's neither of those. Right, and that's what I have to do whenever I'm dealing with an issue. Today, if I go to a restaurant, it's not accessible. 
Then you know what? I call the manager over. I say, listen, like, come here. I got something to tell you, but why isn't your place successful? He goes, well, because we don't have people in wheelchair that come. I said, do you think that's because it's not accessible? Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And so what we tried to do is I tried to develop a relationship with this manager to say, listen, let me help you. Let's make this an opportunity instead of a problem. You know, and let's make this an opportunity so more people could really enjoy your business and so that you can really provide more of your business to more people, yeah. you know, because people with disabilities aren't just coming in here with a complaint that it's not accessible. We're coming in here because we want to feel part of, we want to, we want to feel part of this whole yeah, thing. We want, to, we want to belong like everybody else does, make space for exactly. us. Exactly. What does that look like yeah. and smell like today compared to what that was? Because remember, in 1982, there was no ADA. Yeah. 1982, my house was built on a hill and the only place I had to go up from that hill was up. You know, so it used to scare my parents a great deal when they would just see me and my dog and my motorized wheelchair going up this crazy hill, dependent on these two batteries underneath my butt. Yeah. Yeah. We've come a long way, baby. Oh, exactly. But you know, I, I just think, Hector, of your taking the time and and a real strong message that I am receiving from you at this moment is it's worth it to take the time to share for one minute, like I care enough to come to your establishment or to whatever it is that you offer, would you consider, you know? And and of course now it's the law, but there are lots of ways, right. you know, around the law. Whether it's legally compliant or non-compliant, that's not the issue. The real issue is, you know, let's just all make it accessible so we can enjoy together. Yeah, I love the fact that people with disabilities uh, we're seeing a lot more entrepreneurship mm-hmm. evolve now. Mm-hmm. You know, you talked about your own program evolving, what, two years ago? Yeah, Blink of an Eye, nonprofit, two years ago. Isn't that interesting? Because that's where I saw something amazing happen when we had COVID. Because when we had COVID, we all became disabled, didn't we? In many ways, yeah. It was There was a collective trauma there. We all became isolated. We all became isolated to our homes. People with disabilities have been isolated to their homes for such a long time, feeling that that's the only place that they pretty much have that's theirs, where they know where everything is and so forth. And here we were, we were all forced with it. And here comes in Zoom and a whole new way that we need to start communicating with each other. And yet it's opened doors for people with disabilities. It's cut down on, you know, when I have to get up for an appointment, I have to get two or three hours up earlier right. for that appointment. Yeah. I have to depend on transportation. I have transportation. I have to depend on people making sure they get to my house. Yeah, all the extra time. And, and it's, a, it's a whole day. You will not be working or doing anything else that day. All that stuff disappears yeah. when you find this thing with Zoom and, and being able to communicate with people around the country on this little device here. My goodness, we've had this technology for some time, and yet we have to wait for an experience like COVID for us to really find what those benefits are in that. And don't get me wrong, it has its pros and cons. Another example of what do you do with catastrophes? What do you do do with pain? You know, you live with it, yes, but you can also build from it. You can utilize that energy. Yes, Mm. take it and use it. I need that. And that's what I tell people. You're angry. Great. Isn't that awesome? And you got something to feel. You got 
what do you want to do with it? You know, and people want to say, well, first I want to punch you in the face, you know, or something like that, because they don't know, like I'm speaking like, dude, this is such strange language that you're using. I don't understand what you're saying about use my pain. Yes. Don't abuse yourself with your pain. Use it, your pain for yeah, your let, benefit. Let it allow you to know that you are feeling. Expressing. Exactly. Yes, you express. are alive uh, and you got something to it. say and do. Play yeah. with it. Mm-hmm. Listen to music. Mm-hmm. That's exactly where, where my therapy came from was I just started, why am I using all this negative energy and I'm putting myself, I'm isolating myself further and further away from the world. I want to come into the world. I want, you know, I mean, I really want to be part of it. And that's what the whole inclusion, for me anyway, is looking like today. You know, it's amazing because one of the pieces for me, and maybe we align on this, is that the diversity, equity, and inclusion movement that we might say has been underway for very, very long and hopefully for a long time, but now has really been claimed as diversity, equity, and inclusion. It oftentimes in the discussions and even in uh, in our work as mediators when we're facilitating doesn't include the differently abled community. Mm. You know? know? It's so much about other cultures. We're just touching on it now. We're just, well, we're, yeah. We are touching on it. Yeah. And I love this. I do too. I love it. And maybe that's just something for listeners to think about too. My goodness, we've got these aspects of the pros and cons of the pandemic and for someone who's mm-hmm. spinal cord injured and, you know, one of the negatives, I think you're amazing because I know that perhaps people around the world experienced when they were in their homes, confined to their homes during the pandemic, how unsettling it was to not be able to see people in person or go to the store or go to their friends' homes. And I Think of those who are spinal cord injured. There aren't too many friends' homes they can go to anyway. Right. You know, with regard to accessibility, you know, something else for Mm -hmm. friends of spinal cord injured uh, folks to be able to think about. Something else that was occurring to me, Hector, just to share with you during the pandemic, as we were beginning to crawl out of it, but I was on an airplane and they were not filled back in the day, right? You'd have a space between the two of you. And I flew with somebody who worked for Delta. And, you know, we could have both just kept on our masks and it was a little scary and we didn't want to think we were getting anybody else sick or they were getting us sick and weren't really sure about what to do. But she and I engaged in a conversation. And when I learned that she was a executive at Delta, I shared with her how difficult it is for those who are spinal cord injured. And I you know, told her about Archer to just fly around just to get on an airplane, not to mention all the time as you just have shared for a doctor's appointment, you know, the hours it takes going early and all the things that are necessary, but how the power chairs can't get onto a flight and the transitions and how it's so hard on the body of someone who lives his life, damage, and then to the body, but then damage to the power chair when it's stored, right? In the bowels of the plane. If you're lucky, if it's in the belly of the plane, as opposed to in with all the other luggage. Anyway, she just texted me last night, you know, Louise, check this out. Archer's going to be able to fly on Delta. And it's a prototype that they are unveiling next week, our first week, opening week of season four, 
where Delta Airlines will have a way for those who are in power chairs to get straight onto an airplane in their power chair. And it's, it's pretty exciting. So I think about the restaurants that you have influenced, Hector, when you have very gently, you know, whispered for the manager to come over. You know, just yeah. one conversation. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it's amazing. You know, you're, you're an influencer. And I imagine the, the men in your program whom you're influencing too. Can, can we talk about that, why you're focused on men sure. and how it is that you see spinal cord injured men uh, right. thriving more because of what it is that you and your partner are offering? Me and Willis have uh, been talking about wanting to do something big ever since we've known each other for the last 12 years. We met through each other through the United Spinal Association, which is a great organization. It's been around for over 40 years. It was really there developed for veterans at, at one time, and then it, it broadened out to bring what it is today too. And what that is, it's an amazing organization that picks out chapter leaders throughout the country and invites them every year to come out to Washington so that we can advocate for our rights in Washington. And we do an event there with United Spinal Cord Roll on Capitol Hill. And what it does, it takes two uh, representatives from each state and we get together and we get there like on a Wednesday, Thursday, we learn about what the laws are that's going up there in Washington. And then we go and visit our congressperson or we go visit our senator there in Washington. So that's where me and Willis uh, were, well, we born our relationship, but that's where we met. And it was through that relationship that we just started hanging around more with guys that wanted to make a difference in their communities, you know? And so we got together with these amazing other people from all around the country wanting to make a difference. And the first difference that me and Willis wanted to make, and there was another one, and there's, there's threes in my life. So there was the three musketeers again. It was me, Willis, and another gentleman. Well, I'm going to hold up from naming at this time, only because he passed and so forth. Mm -hmm. And But the three of us, we got together. And that's what we, we talked about, you know, how people with disabilities were being perceived. And right away, we went right to that icon um, that represents accessibility of that stick figure that we all know and that we used in what we call handicapped parking or disabled parking and so forth. And it's just that uh, that stick figure that's been around since the 60s. And at first it didn't have no head. And yet it symbolized access, you know, accessibility. Anyway, back in, uh, I think in the late 90s, in 2000, they came up with this um, called the Accessible Icon Project. And there was a college professor at one of the colleges who was just uh, taking her class through a way of how they can use advocacy through graffiti. And so one student, you know, he crossed out the little stick figure on handicapped parking and he put more of a, of a, of a gentleman in a wheelchair and a stick figure, but in motion. And now this thing was in motion now and that looked different. That looked cool. That's what I want to be. I'm a person in the chair, but man, I'm on a move, man. I got things to do. I got people to talk to, man. I'm a busy man. What do you mean? I'm not just sitting <laughs> yeah, in the chair. Yeah, I got hands to shake and babes to kiss. No time for messing around. <laughs> I'm telling you, man. And that's the way some of us want to be perceived. Yeah. We're just as busy as you are. You know, we did, we got things to do and so forth. And that's the way a lot of us say, yeah, I'd rather be perceived like that. But see, it, that's the purpose of the Accessible Icon Project and why it was a, an advocacy, uh, a graffiti advocacy piece of work, because we just wanted that symbol to get the conversation going, to get the dialogue going about how do you see yourself in that chair? What does that symbol mean to you? And we started having these conversations, and that's what we came with 
the whole don't diss my ability because we put that figure right in the center, you know, and then we put the don't diss my ability around it just for us to start having the conversation about what is it that you can do instead of what is it that you can't do. And so, you know, some of us were speakers, some of us have been writers, some of us, uh, you know, go out and do modeling. You know, we're just beautiful in who we are. So, you know, it's all about, we're still about the whole image Amen. thing there. But, it, <laughs> but it was just amazing to see quadriplegic females and how they learned how to put their, their lipstick on and stuff like that, how they were still able to be, you know, sexual in that sense. And sexy, you know, where they, they talked about, the females talked about, well, yeah, the whole chair takes away from your, you know, the way you feel sexy. And that's why I got involved in sexuality, because when I was introduced to a sexuality tape in Kessler's Institute, I was seeing this guy with very long hair back in the 60s with his leg bag hanging out, you know, and stuff like that. I said, dude, there's nothing sexy about that. How do we make this sexy when that's life, you know? And so forth. And that's where I think that's where it began for me to just start having this dialogue with other people that thought similar ideas. Like, what do I do with that? And that's why I think thriving, like working with the men that right now is they each have their, first of all, we couldn't even done it this way if we wanted to. We ended up with our first 10 men, all, I think the youngest guy there that has an injury is five years post. Everybody else has 20, 30, 40 years injury posts that all wanted to be part of the beta thing because they want to talk about what their experiences has been like and what they've done with their lemons in life. And again, it's amazing to get these 10 guys stories and about their life. And that's why we, we worked a little bit backwards this time. Now we want to come out with the book. Me and Willis want to come out to the book, how we came to the workbook, you know, how we came to these questions. And and I got to really thank my good friend, Pauline Victoria, who is a triple limb amputee. So she only has one leg and she's an amazing public speaker, does a lot of uh, speaking with Les Brown. And the name of her company is called One Leg Up Productions. All right. And what she's done, and I got to introduce her to you, is just amazing uh, what she's done with people. She was my first coach. She was my first uh, life coach. Mm. And, uh, and that's how I got involved with conscious transformational coaching was because there was a way that we can deal with all our mental and emotional trash without even having to talk about it. And I was like, wait a minute, how do you do that? And that's, that's all about muscle memory. Uh, it's, it's just a lot of positive psychology today that's really taking over the way we think and we feel. And we're just uh, learning how to do that. So going back to your question, how do we go about to get to this thriving, this transition aspect of it? You really, it's a process and it takes time simply because we have years and years of negativity that's really been ruling our world for a long time and limitations. So we have to like undo a lot of the stuff that we've learned. So that's what the parts it takes time. Your work on everlasting love which was uh, a YouTube series that you have helped co-host. Is there anything you would like to share with our listeners about that as we wrap ourselves down (laughs) only to wind back up on another day? The reason I I ended up with doing Everlasting Love is because 
about 30 years ago, I did another educational sexuality video called Sexuality Reborn with Dr. Sipsky. And Dr. Sipsky is actually, she was one of the doctors, I should say, at Kessler's Institute when I was there in 1982. And she was big on sexuality uh, when a lot of her patients came up to her and said, girl, you need to change these sexuality videos that you guys have in a library because they're outdated. You know, they were all done in the 60s and they all had spider webs on them. And there was nobody talking about sex in rehab. There was just nobody talking about it. And yet that was part of our frustration, Louise, that we were all in this great facility learning all about our injuries and, you know, how do we get uh, in and out of our chairs and, and how do we take care of ourselves at home? But we were doing this all in an institution. And this was back in the 80s. And we were in the hospital. That's great that we get to learn all these transfers and all these devices. But then home does not look like the Institute. Home does not look like all those things. So I'm glad that PT is awakened to know that we have to actually go out to these people's homes because what they're learning in rehab is going to be totally different what they have at home. And it's great that they want to make sure that they get the hospital bed there and they want to make sure that they get the wheelchair there. But nobody checked if there's a ramp to get in there and how much space do we need to to get in there and where is the house located? Is this a rental or is this an own home? You know, nobody or, or talks even about how this. to get there in terms of, exactly. you know, you can't just call Uber or Lyft. Yes. And so forth. So sexuality again came because we started going into people's homes and we started having these conversations and here's the bedroom, you know, and are you married or are you dating? And, you know, and then, then you get all those personal questions and, you know, that people don't like to talk about. So we found out that sex and money, were two conversations that were very difficult to have with somebody with this injury to talk about, okay, so what do you want to do for a living? Because that's the other part. And, and I'm sorry I'm switching from sexuality to this other thing, but it's um, we've become very dependent now um, with this injury that we get stuck on Social Security disability. And then we think that we can't even start even thinking about an education or a job because then I lose my benefits. You know, it's like, oh my goodness. So we We've got a lot of work to do on, on We Capitol really Hill do gotta do this, that. Yeah. Yes, exactly. With that on top of the whole let's just go back to sexuality. Uh, you know, I came I did the whole um everlasting love from the video that I did twenty years ago, Sexuality Reborn, because there's a need for it and there's just a need for people to talk more about sex in an open forum without it being Goodness, I don't know what the word is without it being a taboo to talk about. Taboo, you know, shaming, uncomfortable, yes, awkward. Yes, that's just a big part of my life because that's I know those are questions that men have when they're they're newly injured. They don't even know how to bring it up with another guy. So you've taken that from Everlasting Love and have yes. incorporated it into the beta course. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. To start having those discussions there as well, too. Tell us briefly about the beta program and what people can look forward to hearing more about. It's a six-week course that you're going to be able to talk about the physical, the mental, the emotional, the spiritual, and the financial transitions that we go through, and how do we go about embracing those. Thank you. Beautiful. Can't wait. Look forward to that. And what's the next chapter for Hector Del Valle? Bring this course to as many people as possible. The other thing that we haven't touched on was the accessible and affordable housing. Knowing that we've uh, talked to companies like Boxable, and we're really excited about that, to be networking with them, to make accessible, affordable housing 
something that's a reality these days. I mean, we're so close to really making this a way where we're just building communities and so forth. And we're not segregating. We're really talking to builders and manufacturers to start including these accessible and affordable floor plans in their programs. So that's just a part of more of what's happening. Yeah, Hector, thank you so much. It has been such you, a Louise. pleasure talking to you, a transformational man, living a very full life and blessings to you. Thank you so much. What a friend. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye now. <laughs> Bye-bye. Hector's story is one of resilience, determination, and of using personal tragedy to fuel positive change. He reminds us of the transformative relational capacity within each of us for any major setback that we may face and the importance of each of us doing our part in advocating for a compassionate and inclusive society. Through all his work, Hector continues to challenge societal norms and work towards a world that prioritizes compassion, accessibility, and equal opportunities for all. Be sure to check out Hector's beta course to learn more of his teachings. I hope that Hector's story has left a lasting impact on you, reminding us all of the extraordinary relational strength that lies within each of us. Don't forget to subscribe to Blink of an Eye podcast for future episodes featuring wise experts on trauma healing and remarkable individuals living with spinal cord injury in the Dear Louise series. Until next time, keep welcoming new insights and noticing shifts in your life, embracing the connection between awareness, integration, and feeling alive and connected. Begin again and again. Sending love. Life can change in the blink of an eye. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to Blink of an Eye on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.